0: It is such a privilege to be able to gather together and study God's Word together. This morning we are finishing up our time in John's first epistle. We've been in this now for um, a few months. I don't even remember how many. When we started, when, when did we, started. we? When? When did Three we? Since we started. Yeah. <laughs> and now this morning we're finishing up john's first epistle um in the next few weeks we'll also be doing his second and third as well but i i'm just as i was preparing and thinking i was thinking we get to gather together and hear god speak to us Corporately, not not just that we gather and we're we're just alone in our in our room in our favorite area where we have our our devotional time and we read God's word, but but together there is there's a dynamic. There's something special about being gathered together as as a church family to hear from God. Uh, I don't ever want us to to just to miss appreciating that and how special that is. And it is is purposed by God that we gather together to sit under the teaching of His Word uh, because we move together, we live together as a church family, we accomplish things on behalf of the Lord together as a church family, and we want to grow spiritually together as a church family. And so as I'm finishing up this morning with this, this letter, um, I want you to know Devin and I are committed to week in and week out preaching expository through the Word of God. And however long the Lord allows me to live in the beautiful state of Maryland and to be a pastor in this church, um, my heart, and I've told Devin, my goal, if at all possible, is to be here long enough so that we have preached through every book of the Bible. That's my heart. And so let's get into the word of God. Look with me in First John chapter five, and in verse 13, This is annoying. I do not have the ears required for this apparatus. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ? He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Father, <clears throat> thank you for these words. Thank you for the love you demonstrate by giving us scripture and speaking to us and caring for us and helping us. And thank you for the work of your Spirit who makes these words come alive and who gives us insight and understanding so that we can gain wisdom to skillfully live in such a way that brings glory to you. So, Father, we attend to these words this morning, and we ask that you would speak to us and allow us the privilege of hearing that our hearts may receive, that our minds may understand, that our lives may be transformed for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> My first semester of co- in college, I had an English professor. He was an Indian. He was from India. But he grew up in England. He had a British accent. His name was Professor Bajorji. And the very first writing assignment he ever gave me when i got it back i had thought that maybe he had cut himself and bled all over the paper <laughs> because the only thing i saw on the paper were red marks and as i read through that paper i realized i did not know how to write and the the grade that i got was barely a c on that paper and throughout my the four the the four semesters that I had to take English, I purposely chose Professor Georgie. And I never got more than a C in his class, but he taught me how to write because he taught me how to reason and how to think and how to understand. He wasn't about like a a vending machine where you just put money in and you pull the lever and and a piece of candy comes out and you do that with, with academics. He just gives you information and you regurgitate it out. No, he wanted us to learn. And he made us learn. And I paid the price for it with my grades. But I learned. At least I think I did. 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 Marilyn tells me I did. John approaches the knowledge of Christ in the very same way. In the same manner, he he's not just spitting out information about Jesus Christ, but he's teaching his dear children how to think and how to consider and how to reason and how to learn about the marvelous truths of Jesus Christ and his redeeming work and and what it means practically in our lives, how we're to live. He's teaching Christians how to think biblically. Is what he's doing, how to apply biblically and how to live biblically. And throughout his letter, he never leaves the basic truths of the gospel. Now, why? Why does he do this? Because he wants to remind us and remind these folks once again in 5.13 that I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. That you have eternal life. The title of this message is, You Can Be Sure. You Can Be Sure. John writes that we may know. I, I hope you caught in this section alone, this passage that we're studying, seven times John uses the phrase, the idea that you may know. John is after something. Now, throughout history, many changes have occurred that are remarkable. Civilization grows and learns. And, but even with the amazing progress, humanity's fallen nature remains the same. And without fail, without fail, every generation opposes and tries to destroy the truth about Jesus Christ. Every generation And as a good and loving pastor that he is, John is doing all he can in his generation because there are those who oppose and hate the truth of the gospel. They oppose Jesus Christ as a good and loving pastor. John is doing all he can to teach and equip these dear saints how to remain faithful to Jesus Christ so that they can have the assurance that they have eternal life in him. That is what he is doing. In Pilgrim's Progress, and you you hear me quote Pilgrim's Progress a lot. I would encourage you, if you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, you should read it. And if you if you have read it, but it's been a long time, you should read it. It is it is a stimulating and inspiring book. Well, in Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian's wife and children are Trying to call him back from the journey he is about to begin to the celestial city. This is what Christian does. He puts his fingers in his ears and he runs on crying, life, life, eternal life. He lets nothing deter him from that. And John's letter is written to us so that we too might look nowhere else but to Jesus Christ in that future celestial city as we run with our fingers in our ears saying, life, life, eternal life. John's, John finds great joy in knowing that these truths will become real in our lives. In chapter 1, verse 4, John says this, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. John's greatest joy is knowing that we are secure in our knowledge of having eternal life and knowing that we know we have eternal life. He wants to know that we know. We have eternal life. And that's why he writes that in one four. But he not only writes that his joy might be complete, he writes that our joy might be complete. That our joy would be expansive. That our joy would be that we are assured that we have eternal life. And so here's my proposition. Simply, only in Christ can we find joy in a joyless world. Only in Christ can we find joy in a joyless world. And here are my main points. Four points this morning for you. John ends his letter with four assurances that bring us, that should bring us great joy in a joyless world. The first assurance is that we know that God hears and answers our prayers. The second assurance, we know that we are free from the bondage of sin and under the protection of Jesus Christ. The third assurance, we know that we belong to Christ and not the world or the devil who rules the world. And the final assurance, we know Jesus Christ. Let's look at the first assurance. We know Jesus that God hears and answers our prayers. In verse 14, And this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. John believes that, brothers and sisters, he believes every Christian can and should have confidence to approach God in prayer that nothing should prevent us, should hinder us from going to God in prayer. We are privileged to talk to God, with God, in an uninhibited, open and free way, with reverence and submission, but we are free to talk to God. It is because we are children of a loving and heavenly Father who loves to welcome us into his presence. Jesus made this access possible through his suffering and sacrifice and death and resurrection. In Hebrews chapter 4, if you remember that passage, which I'm sure most of you have memorized that passage because it is... One of the more encouraging ones. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And he says these words, Let us with and with confidence. Let us end with confidence. Draw near. Near. Not a distance, but near to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We do not have to fear approaching God. John is telling us he is not. He does not see God, and we should not see God as some distant and fearful wizard of Oz, hiding behind a curtain with with loud, thunderous voice and and smoke and fire. That is not. Who God is, he is the God who sent his son, who can sympathize with our weaknesses, who has been tempted like we are in every way. And says, let us draw near with confidence so that we can ask him for help. That is a big, is a, a big word for John. Throughout his letter, John has made the claim that we could have confidence before God in a number of ways. In 2.28, John writes, And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. In 3.21, he writes this, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. In 4.17, he again does the same thing. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so, also are we in this world. So here he is, he is saying, listen, you can have confidence. You can know that you can go before the Lord and pray. In 322, John says, And whatever we ask, from him we receive. He again reiterates early on that we can have confidence to ask him anything according to his will because he hears us and gives us what we, we request. Listen, God is eager to hear your prayers. Do you believe that? When you pray, do you pray with the understanding that God is eager to hear your prayers? And this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Praying with confidence is an evidence that we believe in Jesus Christ as the eternal God, which gives us confidence in knowing we have eternal life. But there is a caveat. We must pray according to his will. And how can we know we are praying according to God's will? David Jackman, in his commentary, says this, Our praying is never on surer foundation than when it is grounded in Scripture. For here, God's will is revealed. As we pray Bible prayers, we know that God will hear and answer. The question is, what are Bible prayers? They are prayers in accordance with God's Word. Simply that. Prayers like, Lord, Please help me to love my church family. Well, how do we know that's a Bible prayer? Because throughout John's letter, he's told us that we are to love one another, to obey God's commands. Lord, please forgive me of my sin. First John 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, please help me to stand firm in the faith. Lord, please deliver me from evil. The Lord's Prayer. Please, Lord, help me flee youthful lust. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Lord, please provide my daily bread. The Lord's Prayer. Lord, please help me to help those in need. Lord, please save the lost, and etc. On and on. We can have confidence when we pray Bible prayers. Prayers that are rooted in the truths of Scripture and prayers that actually can be from Scripture. Whether it's praying the Psalms and inserting our names in there or whatever. I wanted to mention a book that I have read and loved. It's by D.A. Carson. It's a call to spiritual reformation. And it's, it's really a book about how to pray scripture. It's an outstanding help to, to learn how, how to pray biblically. And that is what, is, what John is, is saying here. We can be confident that God will answer our prayers when we know we're praying according to God's will. And it doesn't mean we can't pray other prayers. It's not like we have to only pray Scripture. But we want to pray according to Scripture. And we can be confident that God will answer prayer. And even when it's not immediately evident. There's a graphic Old Testament illustration in Daniel 10 where the answer to Daniel's prayer, Daniel prayed. And there was a period of twenty-one days before da- Daniel's prayer was answered, and and Daniel has this conversation with Gabriel about that, and and he's saying, "Yeah, I, I was I was prevented by the prince of Persia." He's talking about the the, the devil, and so there's there's this spiritual warfare going on that is. Before Daniel's prayer gets answered, and you can go back to Ephesians six, and you can see that our, our our warfare is not against flesh and blood; it's spiritual. And so that's that's one explanation of why we may not see an immediate answer to prayer. But what we do know is what the Scripture teaches us, and if we know that He hears us, and we do know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know. Again, there's John. We know that we have the request. That we have asked of him. Why would you not pray? What then could possibly prevent you from praying? And John goes on in the following verses. To describe, to give an illustration of prayer. To describe praying in in verse Sixteen. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask. Now he's looking back to just what he talked about in whatever we ask. He's saying this is prayer according to God's word. This This is prayer according to the will of God. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Now there is a sin that leads to death and I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. John goes on to describe how we can pray. And throughout his letter, he said again and again that the assurance we have is that we obey his commands. And one of those commands and is primarily we love one another. One of the greatest expressions of love is to pray for one another. You want to you demonstrate obedience to the commands to love one another? Pray for one another in this church, particularly here when he's talking about praying for those who are faltering in their relationship with the Lord and they're struggling in sin. This is this is a Bible prayer. This is a a scriptural prayer. And our prayer is for restoration. We're praying for the restoration. Our prayer is for these folks to experience the benefits of a brother, to experience the benefit of eternal life, which they're not experiencing at that moment. But, and to pray for them that they would be restored back to the Lord because their relationship with the Lord is faltering. Psalm sixty-six eighteen says that those, those who cherish sin in their heart are distant from the Lord. And that is why we pray for these folks. And one last comment about this section, the context of First John, is assurance that is pitted against the false teachers who have been denying the incarnation of Christ. These people who are denying the inc- incarnation of Christ were, were men who were actually men and women who were actually a part of this church, who left this church and are now proclaiming heresy. And they're denying the incarnation of Christ. They're denying the deity of Christ. They're denying Christ. That's what these folks are doing. They have turned their backs on Christ. They were never true believers in the first place. It's not that they've committed the unpardonable sin, but they were never pardoned in the first place. And so that is what John is referring to here. David Jackman says this, The sin that leads to death is unforgiven and remains unforgiven because it refuses to appropriate the gracious means of pardon which God has provided. These people cannot be true believers. Whatever they claim for the essence of unbelief is to deny Christ who Christians confess as Savior and Lord. So our first assurance is that we know God hears and answers our prayers. The second assurance is this. We know we are free from the bondage of sin and under the protection of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 18. We know, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. John, John is clear. Christians do not go on sinning. Not that we don't sin. That's not what John is saying here. But we are no longer in bondage to sin. In 2.29... John writes, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of sin. So the opposite of, of practicing sin is practicing righteousness. In 3 6, he goes on to say, No one who abides in him, in Christ, keeps on sinning. And then in 3 9, he continues that thought and he says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. We know we are free. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. We've been freed from the dominion, the bondage, the slavery of sin because of the finished work of Christ. On the cross, by his death and his resurrection, we are no longer slaves to this world, to this devil, to our own sinful nature in that we are not in bondage to sin. Do we sin? Yes. We still live in this body. We still live in a fallen world. We still live in, in fallen bodies. And we still have to battle the presence of remaining sin. But we do not have to go on practicing Sin, Which is what John is after there. He knows that our salvation is anchored in Christ and sustained by the Spirit. And that Jesus protects us from the grip of the evil one. Look at this here in this passage. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God, he's speaking of Jesus there. But he who is born of God protects him. Jesus protects us. And the evil one does not touch him. That word touch. John uses that same word touch in in his gospel in chapter 20. When he's talking about Mary who encounters the risen Christ. And she realizes who he is and she clings to him. Do you remember? She grabs him and she clings to him. That's that Greek word, to cling. And that is what what John is writing here. The evil one does not touch or cling to you. In other words, Christ is protecting you. And so whatever schemes of the evil one, whatever he is trying to do to, to deceive you, Christ is protecting you. He cannot cling to you, he cannot grasp you. he cannot get you in his grip and hold on to you anymore. You are under christ 's protection. He will keep you safe. These are the John says we know we know we know that that the evil one cannot grip us anymore, and so even if you are this morning you are you are struggling with a pattern of sin, the fact that you are struggling, the fact that you feel guilty and you are convicted. That's just, that's just giving you evidence that you know him. And yeah, it is a battle and it can be discouraging and you can feel condemned at times but, but know this and the evil one does not touch him. David Jackman wrote this, he said it is Christ who keeps his children safe so that Satan cannot literally fasten himself upon them. He may and will attack God's children, but he cannot again get a foothold. He cannot succeed in getting them back into his grip. That is where the world is, as verse 19 will show us, in the grip of the evil one. But the church is kept safe by the eternal son to whom all power is given and who guarantees in his own words her total security. I give my sheep eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hands. So as we struggle against sin in our lives, we do so with confidence, not despair. Our protector is stronger than our enemy, more vigilant and more concerned than we can ever be. We know it is true. That is your second assurance. Your second assurance is that we know we are free from the bondage of sin and no longer under the rule of the evil one. The third assurance is that we know We know we belong to Christ and not the world or the devil who rules the world. Look at verse 19. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John makes a very clear and true statement here. We are from God. We are from God. We know that we are from God. God. Do you know? We are from God. The world that is under the control of the devil is not our world. It's not our world. John 4 6, 4 th- little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We know we are from God. You should walk out of here today. Just have a greater awareness. If you've put your faith and trust in Christ, you are from God you know Christ. The devil controls the world with a tyrannical authority that expresses itself through hatred and opposition to God. The worldly freedom that the devil promises is an illusion. That's all it is. It's an illusion. We know we're not of this world because we live under the lordship of Jesus Christ and all that that means We obey his commands, we love his children, we worship him alone, we do his bidding here in this life until we go to our true home. So we live in this world, but we are not of this world. And even though we are not of this world, because we belong to Christ, because we belong to Christ, we live in this world to accomplish things for Christ. We're just not here on Sunday mornings for ourselves. This is not why Grace Church exists. Grace Church doesn't exist just so it's a convenient location and a nice place to meet for this community. We exist for something greater than ourselves. We exist as a church to fulfill the purposes of God in our generation for the time that we have on this earth. David Jackman one more time says this, if we live under Christ's lordship, we must remember that he has commissioned us all to go into the world not to withdraw from it. Our new attitude is not one of indifference or separation, but one of involvement and compassion after the model of our Savior. If these things are certainties in our thinking, they must be seen in our commitment to being salt and light in our communities, and above all, to communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the words of Jude, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt and snatch others from the fire and save them. We know we're from God and we know the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that we're not in that world and that we're not under his power and we're not under his rule. But because we're in that world, we have a role to play. We have something to do. Oh, and may we do it for the glory of God and the good of people. And the final assurance, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Uh, There is no more clear statement about who Jesus Christ is than this passage right here. He is the true God. And eternal life. The, the final assurance, the final assurance is we know him who is true. John gives them assurance by reminding them simply this they know Jesus Christ because they've believed that Jesus has come in the flesh and had, they've been given understanding about the true knowledge of God. Our minds, the the God of this world, Scripture says, blinds the minds of those who don't believe. And they cannot see and understand the true knowledge of who God is. We do. We have understanding. The Son of God has come and given us understanding. You, as finite people, you get to know the infinite God. Right here. Right here. And you can get on your knees and you can pray. And you can have God hear you. And God answer you. It is the knowledge of God the Father. How amazing is that? That we can know God. Sinful, finite. How is it that we can know God? Not only know Him, but to be in Him. We are in Him who is true. We are attached. We are connected. We have fellowship with God the Father because if we are in Christ who is the true God, so we're in the Father. We're in Christ, we're in the Father. Faith faith in Christ is, is an objective truth. He is the Son of God who came to earth. He is the true Son of God. Our lives exist in Him who is true. He is the true God in eternal life. And our faith exists in a relationship with God. With Jesus who became one of us. And because He became one of us, we now have gospel understanding. So that we might have fellowship with God. This is what we know. John ends his letter with the encouragement of four assurances in our relationship with God. We know that he hears us when we pray and he answers us. We know. We know, as he says in verse 18, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning and God protects them. Verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, but we don't. And we know Christ. But as he finishes his letter, verse 20 is not the final verse. He drops this one last verse in in 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. I believe that statement right there is the application for the entire letter. if you want to to know and have the assurance you have eternal life and you do it by obeying his commands and by loving his people and by not practicing sin, you keep yourself free from idols. The very things that will turn your heart away from God. The very things that will steal your joy. The very things that will deceive you and enslave you. Keep yourselves free. From idols. If we desire to remain assured of all that God has promised in Christ, we will not let our hearts be drawn to worship other gods. Here is the application for the entire letter. You will not love the Father if you love something else more than Him. You will not fellowship with the Father if you love something else more than Him. You will not obey his commands if your heart desires something else more than him. You will not love others if you love something else more than him. You will not enjoy the assurance of eternal life if you desire something else more than him. And so John says, keep yourselves free from idols. Because an idol, an idol is any false hope that controls us. Because it replaces our trust and love for God. It, it might be hope in a relationship. Hope in a good job. Hope in good health. Hope in a good future. Hope in obedient children. Hope in material things. Hope in my dreams being realized. These false hopes creep into our hearts. And they draw our hope in Christ away. Our hope in life is in our knowledge of Jesus Christ and that we are from God and that we know Christ. Our hope in life is in this knowledge regardless of the circumstances we face so that our hearts are not drawn away. So when Paul Rohr is standing in the middle of his bedroom and bathroom and water is just dr- going up to his his ankles in the midst of a cold day and he's just thinking, what is going on? He, he's, no, he's saying, I know I am Christ. When Sharon Pyle is looking at her house filled with water and pipes bursting and the electricity not working and she comes home to that, she still knows who her Savior is and that her life isn't built around the circumstances of what she is facing, when Mike Stogsdale gets up each morning and faces the Battle of Parkinson's disease, he knows his hope is in Christ, not in a perfect body. When Justin Cowan spends all night awake with debilitating pain, he knows he can look to Christ, and that his hope isn't in healing, his hope is in Christ. Their lives are anchored in the love of the Father. Demonstrated in the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. John has promised that the Son of God will keep us. But this does not relieve us of the responsibility to keep ourselves. And that's what John is saying here. We must remain firm in Christ and be vigilant in guarding the good deposit entrusted to us. Proverbs 4.23 says this. And I'm giving you the, the New American Standard uh, translation. Above all else, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Above all else. That is what John is saying here in verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. And in our assurance, we will have joy in a joyless world because our joy is grounded in Jesus Christ who is the true God and eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for truth. Truth that sets us free. Truth that protects us. Truth that watches over us. Truth that gives us assurance that we know we have eternal life. Lord, may we now, as we leave here today, take this truth and live in such a way that brings glory and honor to you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.